If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. i got to find Romans chapter 1 before we go there. Romans chapter 1. And uh, tonight, I just want to preach from a really simple subject, uh, a really simple topic tonight, something simple for me. But I think something that's really important for us um, as a church to really understand and be passionate about uh, as we move on as a church. And what I want to talk about is, is pretty simple. I, I gave up on, uh, you know, titles a long time ago because I'm the most uncreative person in the entire world. Uh, but I want to talk from the subject of the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, just the basic gospel, the simple gospel of Jesus. And I want to turn to Romans chapter 1 because I believe Paul in Romans uh, gives us a really good introductory kind of statement, if you will, into what the gospel is all about. Okay, and we'll give you some points with that. But I want to read it first. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, here's what Paul says. We're going to read down to verse 16. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, excuse me, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received, received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those who are in Rome and who are loved by God, to call to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers of mine, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine's. I do not want to be unaware, brothers, that I have often attended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation. This is the good stuff right here now. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who in Rome. Last verse that I'm going to read tonight, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Man, I ain't even started. Right. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. Everybody say power. power. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think the book of Romans is actually somewhat of an interesting book. It's a deep theological book, a book that I do not claim to understand because I don't. All right? Uh, it's a big book, and actually what makes it an interesting book is that Paul, when he writes other epistles, when he writes other letters in the New Testament, for example, the book of Galatians, when he's writing to them, one of the things that he will do is he makes clear his purpose. He makes clear his purpose. For instance, in the book of Galatians, he gets a little confrontational, all right? Like, that's not my style of preaching, you know what I mean? I'm not a confrontational kind of person. But he goes in and he says, look, there's been a lot of false teaching in this church, and, and there, I want to bring clarity where there has been distortion. And he makes clear why he is writing to the church in Galatia, if you will. 
But in the book of Romans, what's interesting is that, you know, some people, you know, assume why is Paul writing to the church at Rome, but we're not 100% sure why. One interesting uh, fact is that, or maybe a theory of, is that Paul is writing, according to Romans 15, maybe as a missionary letter to the church at Rome to gain funds as he goes on his missionary journey. But here's what we do know. Here's what we know about the book of Romans. Three things. First of all, is that Paul had never visited this church. So he's writing to a church that he's never visited. Secondly, is that the church at Rome is a very influential place. It's a very influential place. And thirdly, most importantly, especially for our subject tonight, is that he communicates to them above any other, any other book of the Bible, in my opinion, he communicates to them the gospel. He communicates to them the gospel. And so if, if he wants to communicate anything to the church at Rome, an influential place, a church that will have influence among the world, Paul says, what I want you to know above all things, what I want you to know above anything else is what you have to get right is you have to get the gospel right. If you're going to get anything else right, you've got to get the gospel right. And so from Romans chapter 1 through all the way up to Romans chapter 11, at the end of verse 11, he communicates the gospel beautifully to the church at Rome. And that ought to communicate to us the importance of the gospel for Paul, that if, if there's anything that Paul has called us to, or God has called us to, if there's anything that God says, listen, I want you to get this right. I want this to be at the forefront of your mind when you're doing your Christian life, your ministry, whatever it is, God says, I want you to get the gospel right. Amen? I want you to get the gospel right. So a few things, four things tonight I want to give you that I believe Paul introduces to us about the gospel in Romans chapter 1. Four things, and here's the first one, is that he communicates to us, firstly, the effect of the gospel. The effect of the gospel. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I didn't even check the time, so I want to make sure I don't go over. There we go. He communicates to them the effect of the gospel, and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here's what he says, For it is the power. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says the gospel is the power of God. That word power in the original language literally is the word dunamis. He's saying it is the power of God. The gospel is the dunamis of God. That word dunamis is where we get the word dynamite. The gospel is the dynamite of God, he says. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God. I grew up Pentecostal back in northeast Mississippi. Come on, somebody. You know, the head's shaking. We got it going, running around the church. And we always made a lot about the power of God. How many know what I'm talking about? I mean, we love to sing about the power of God, preach about the power of God. We want to experience the power of God. And all things that I'm really grateful for that I grew up in, we, we experience the power of God. But I want you to know today that if you want to see a manifestation of God's power, you do not have to look any further than the gospel of God that he has given us. God has chosen in these last days to demonstrate his power to us through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And that's so important, I believe, for us to understand, because if we are not careful, at least for me sometimes, is that when we think of the power of God, we can only think of it in terms of feelings, of experience, and I'm thankful for that. 
I'm thankful for experience. We ought to experience God. We ought to experience the gospel. But remember that it is a truth that is revealed to us. It is a truth that is revealed to us. The gospel is not just a dead letter. It's not just a cold truth, but it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Consider ways in which God has demonstrated his power. I thought this would be fun. I was thinking about this earlier. I was thinking, how, how can I communicate this? And I thought about Genesis chapter 1. Jesus certainly demonstrated his power in Genesis chapter 1 when he created the world by just speaking. He said, let there be light, and there was what? Light. God spoke the world into existence. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 is so crazy that we live in a modern world today who would look on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and say, if you take that literal, you're crazy. Because Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a miracle, but it is a demonstration of God's power that he spoke and there was. God spoke and there was light. God spoke and there was plants and there was trees and there was the sky. There was everything. God spoke the world into existence. And according to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, not only did he speak the world into existence, but he sustains the world by the word of his power. He sustains the world by the word of his power. So literally, according to the writer of Hebrews, this very moment, the moment that we breathe and we take in as seconds go by and as minutes go by, it is a demonstration of God's power because every moment that we are alive is a moment that God continues to speak. He speaks the word of his power. And God demonstrates his power when the prophet Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, didn't he? He was thrown into the lion's den to be murdered and to be mauled by lions, but God demonstrated his power when he shut the mouths of lions he demonstrated his power when the God of the universe, Jesus, became flesh and he lived the 33 perfect years and he died on a cross. And three days later, our Lord and Savior defeated death, hell, and the grave, defied it, and rose again in power. Amen? He rose again in power. Our God is not a God of weakness. Our God is not a God in heaven wondering, oh, Lord, what am I going to do? The coronavirus is breaking out. I don't know. That's not our God. Our God is a God of power. Our God is a God that's in control. Our God is a God that is sovereign. And I want you to know today that in no less of a way than when God spoke the world into existence, God sustains the world by the word of his power. God shut the mouths of lions. When, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace and not one hair on their body was burnt, when Jesus was rose from the dead by the power of God, in no less way, God also demonstrates his power in the gospel. He demonstrates his power through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is not just something we pay homage to as we move on to something that excites us more. It's not just a kind of statement of faith that we say, here's what we believe, so it makes us orthodox. No, the gospel is our life. It's our life, and it is the power of God. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 through 5. I love this verse. He says to the church at Corinth, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you, which is huge for Paul because Paul is an educated man. Paul knows the Bible. If he wanted to wow somebody with his brilliance, he could have done so, right? But he comes to him and he says, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes on, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, 
but in what? In a demonstration of the spirits and of power. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. There's a direct correlation in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, with the gospel that Paul preaches and the power of God that he desires that they would experience. This is not a dead letter. It's not just a message that we preach. It's the power of God put on display in these last days. Amen? It's the power of God. I want to give you a couple insights into what Paul, how Paul describes the power of God in Romans 1.16. Firstly, he says that the power of God is exclusively the, everybody say the, is exclusively the power of God. He says the gospel is the power of God. There is no other message that Paul claims. There is no other message that Paul, that Paul will go to, that he will preach. The gospel is alone the power of God unto salvation. Think of what Paul says in Romans 1, 1 when he starts the book of Romans. He says, Paul, and a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and he says, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. In Galatians, as I mentioned earlier, as Paul is writing to the church there, he, he is making clear a gospel that has been distorted. And here's what he says. He says, I am astonished that you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Listen to this. Not that there is another gospel. Because there isn't another gospel. There is no other message. There's only one gospel that God has called us to. That there is another, there is no other gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. When you distort the gospel of Christ, you lose the gospel of Christ. When you distort it, you lose it because it's exclusively the power of God. There's no other message that God has called us to. It is the power of God. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? By which we must be saved. And, of course, Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the what? The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one gospel. We do not move beyond the gospel when we get to a place where we're just really mature. No, we, we don't move beyond the gospel. We move deeper into the gospel. There is not more than the gospel. There is only more of the gospel. Come on, somebody. There's only more of it. So he tells us the exclusivity of the gospel and the power of God. Second and thirdly, in, in Romans chapter 116, he says that the power is from God. The power is from God. That's important to understand that the power that we receive in salvation, it doesn't happen by the creativity of man, the charisma of man, by our planning or anything such as that. But salvation happens by the power that comes from God, the from God. And thirdly, the power of God is, this is simple enough, it's unto salvation. It's unto salvation. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. He says, and you were dead, everybody say dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I, we were just sick, I thought we were just dying, but that we were dead. And this is a foundational truth to understanding the importance, keyword there, the importance of the power of God in our lives. 
Because if we don't understand the sinfulness of man, we won't realize how much we really need the power of God. You don't walk into a graveyard and say, get up and walk. Because your words don't mean anything. Right? When you call a man unto salvation, you don't say, get up and believe and have faith. It only happens when our words are accompanied by the Spirit of God, by the power of God. We have to have the power of God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, this is Ephesians 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so Paul says, listen, if you didn't get the point there, you're a sinner. That's the point. You can't save yourself. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4, Paul, listen to this now, he takes a turn. And he says, here's how you were saved. Here's how grace comes into your life. Here's how faith comes into your life. And this is so important. In verse 4, he says, but you can't stop the human race, baby. Come on. You tear them down, they're going to get back up. But the goodwill of man. No, 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 no. None of those things. Paul turns to God because he understands that salvation, first and foremost, is the source of salvation is God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Paul, you've already said that. He's trying to get a point across that by grace, this is not your own doing. This is not your own goodwill. This is not how faithful you are to Summit Church, although those things are great, and we love those things, and we're thankful for those things. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. God saved us for things, but we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. You have been saved by grace through faith, and as if he hasn't gotten the point across already, he says, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Your salvation is a gift of God and it's not a result of work so that no one may boast. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 through 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is the great cause of salvation. The only reason we're here, the only reason we delight in the Word of God, the only reason we worship, the only reason we can sing is because God saves sinners. That's the message of Christianity, that God saves sinners. Last verse here in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Come on, somebody. We are the product of God intervening in our lives. Do you believe that today? Is the power of God in salvation. The gospel is effectual. The gospel is efficient for our lives. Again, it's not a dead letter. 
It's not just something that we, we, we put in the statement of, of faith that, again, just makes us orthodox. No, man, when we preach it, man, our lives are dependent on it. If anyone is ever going to be saved, it's because the gospel is proclaimed in the world. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's so important, the effect of the gospel. Secondly, Paul lets us in in Romans chapter 1. He lets us in on the contents of the gospel, the content of the gospel. Let me just say this. The effect of the gospel means nothing unless you understand what the gospel is, right? You can say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation all you want to all day long, but if you don't know what the gospel is, you ain't got nothing. We have to know what the gospel is. Again, I said I grew up Pentecostal, charismatic, all that stuff, and we love to talk about how God is good. Woo, God's good, somebody. You ever heard it when my, my preacher used to say all the time? He used to say, and tell me if you know this. He said, God is good and all the time. So good. He, he, he loved that verse. Taste and see that the Lord is Come on. His kindness leads us to repentance. That's so important. But you have to remember in good news, good is an adjective describing news. It is news. And it is news. It's the news of God. It is the news of what Jesus has done. That is what is good. That is what is good. So we have to have a mix of, of emotion, I guess, if you will, and truth. We have to know the truth of God. And here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then in verse 2, he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then in verse 3, he says, concerning his son. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, what Paul communicates to us in the first four verses of Romans is that the gospel concerns Jesus. Come on, somebody. The gospel concerns Jesus. That word concerning, I don't know Greek. I got the Blue Letter Bible app, so I look it up. The word concerning and the original language is literally where we get the prefix peri, P-E-R-I, peri, as in periscope. It's denoting about, around, on account of. In other words, the gospel is all about Jesus. If you've got a gospel without Jesus, you don't have the gospel. The gospel is not good advice about how to live a good life. The gospel is good news about what Jesus has done. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. Three things that Paul tells us about the gospel. The first thing he tells us about the content of the gospel is that Christ is found in the scriptures. Is that Christ is found in the scriptures. He says, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. In the holy scriptures. Now, I said earlier that I have no desire to be disagreeable or confrontational. I don't. My wife all the time will tell me, Patrick, you have got to be a little confrontational. You can't be nice all the time. So she tells me. But when it comes to the Word of God, this is so important for us to understand because, and I really believe this, that, I mean, it's true, is that we live in an evangelical world where there are pastors who take on the name evangelicalism, who say things such as, we ought to cut ourselves off from the Old Testament. And let me just say, that is, that is uh, you know, we can justify that, and we can try to find justifying things for that, but that is unacceptable. That is unacceptable. 
And they're scoffing at other evangelicals, such as we would say that the Word of God is our foundation. I never thought it would be tested that the Word of God is our foundation. The Word of God, if you don't know, is our foundation for life. It's our foundation for the Christian life. If you take away the Word of God, you literally pull up the rug up underneath our feet. We have nothing to stand on, and we will fall every time. The Word of God is very important. If you can't trust some of it, you can't trust any of it. If, if some of it is not true, we can't be sure that any of it is true. If, if, all this, if all this stuff in the Old Testament that we're just like, you know what, I just don't think God really did that. How do we know what Jesus did is true? We affirm the authority, the inerrancy, the inspired word of God. It is important. It is the foundation of our lives. Paul could have started Romans chapter 1. He could, have, he could have appealed to his experience, couldn't he? We're going to talk about Acts 9 here in just a minute, but he could have started the book of Romans, and he could have said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called to be, our servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Oh, and by the way, this Jesus I'm about to talk about, he's real, baby. In Acts chapter 9, I was thrown off a horse. It was a great light. I was blinded, and Ananias came. He spoke the word of God. I was saved. My eyes were open. Come on, somebody. I got a testimony. You know what I'm saying? He could have appealed to experience, but he didn't. He appealed to the word of God. There's nothing wrong with our testimonies. We're overcomers by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, right? We can't do it at the sake of forgetting that the word of God is the foundation for everything we believe and profess as Christians. It's very important. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, Paul is speaking to his son in the faith, his spiritual son in the faith. And he says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And actually in verse 14, I wish I would have wrote it down. He actually refers, he actually reminds Timothy. He says, listen, your mother and your grandmother, they raised you this way. Like they raised you this way. It's your, remember your upbringing. Remember your childhood. Which I find interesting as well. There's so much academic talk about the word of God. Is it real? Is it without error? But I'm telling you, I believe more than ever, and I'm so thankful for parents who raised me this way, I believe now more than ever the best thing that we can do is raise a family believing the Word of God. That is the best tool that we have, is families. That best tool we have is a mom and dad who raise sons and daughters believing truths about the Word of God. I know it not because I did it. I know it because I have mom and dad who done it for me. Believe in the word of God. He says, and from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And then he says, which are able. Which are able. Isn't that interesting? The, the words on a page, they don't mean anything. When you read a book, it doesn't mean anything. But these words are not just words on a page. They're, we're about to read in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. They are breath on a page. They're not dead. They're alive. And he says they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture, all scripture. I looked up the Greek word all. It means all. <laughs> all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God and it is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. James 1.18, James says, of his own will. We just talked about this. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the what? By the word of truth. By the word of truth. The reason we're here today is because the word of God. 
the word of God at work in our lives, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. In John chapter 5, verse 46 through 47, Jesus tells the religious people of his day, he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how you, will you believe my words? I, you know what? I just think that this, this message of we ought to cut ourselves off from the other, that, that would be foreign to Jesus. It would be foreign to Paul. If you don't believe Moses, you don't believe me. Moses, he wrote of me. He wrote of me. Moses is true. The Old Testament is true. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying a prayer for us, the great high priestly prayer. I was reading a book uh, this week, and I can't remember who it was, but this quote was from. Some of you may know this. And he was talking about Jesus praying for us, and he said, only if we knew. I'm going to mess up the quote. All right, this is the Patrick version. I'm gonna, but he said, if we only knew that if Jesus was just in the other room praying for us, man, we would approach the world with boldness. We would approach the world with, without fear. And he says in the very same way, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And I like to believe that if we, if we knew Jesus was just in the other room praying for us, what we would do is we would open the door and say, what's he saying? What's he saying about me? And in John chapter 17, verse 17, or actually the whole chapter of John 17, we get a glimpse into what Jesus says when he's praying for us, when he's praying for me, when he's praying for you. And in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them, sanctify us right here tonight, sanctify us in the truth. And he says, your word is truth. Your word is truth. I know I'm sharing a lot of scriptures tonight, but I want to just share one more in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Jesus tells a story, and I love this story. And in verse 19, it's a lot of verses, but I'm going to share it. Verse 19, he says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And his gate was laid, and his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So in other words, the poor man died and went to heaven. But the rich man also died and was buried and was in Hades, being in torment. And he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Isn't it interesting that the rich man who ends up in hell, he's asking for relief, not rescue. Which is interesting in and of itself. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in the like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and no one may cross from there to us. And this verse 27, this is where it gets to the good stuff. We're almost done. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He says, listen, let him go to my house. I got five brothers. They're not saved. If they see a dead man, trust me, they'll get their life together. Go to the house. But Abraham said, listen to what Abraham said. They have Moses and the prophets. 
let them hear them. Verse 30, he, tell, he, he goes back to Abraham and he says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I don't know about you, but I'd repent if a dead person walked up in here. <laughs> Lord, get me right with Jesus. But here's what, in verse 31, he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, the word of God, that Bible that's on your bookshelf, it is sufficient for your life. It is sufficient for your life. It is efficient to make you holy, to justify you, to sanctify you. That word of God at home is not a dead letter. It is alive. It is well. It is able to save. Come on, somebody. It's the word of God. Here's the second thing, and I'll end is that he lets us in on that Christ is found in the Scripture. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of Man. He says, concerning his Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. That word descended is literally the word seed. He is the seed of David. And so when you read those genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, what they are saying, those are not boring things. What he is saying is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Here's what, here's what God said to the serpent, he, he gave him a curse in Genesis 3.15, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God made a promise as early as Genesis 3.15, there will be a Savior, and he will defeat the enemy who is out to destroy you. God keeps his promises. He is the Son of Man. And second, thirdly, he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. It doesn't matter that Jesus is the Son of Man unless he's the Son of God also. There's a lot of names in the genealogy of Matthew that I can't even pronounce. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> but Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 4 in Romans chapter 1, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared. It's not that he made him the Son of God. He was declared the Son of God. It revealed him as the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt and tabernacled among us. Come on, I want you to know today that our Savior, he's not just a God that's in right relationship with God. He did not have to be born again. He was without sin. He was God. He was the Son of God. Come on, that's good news. Amen. It is good news. I'm going to end. I have two more points, but I'm going to go through them just really quickly. I think I sang too long. I think that's my issue. No, y'all like to sing it, huh? Thirdly, Paul lets us in, and I'm going to fly through this, is the goal of the gospel. Is the goal of the gospel. He gives us the effect of the gospel. It's effectual to salvation for all of our lives, for every person who has believed. And so every person who has ever believed has believed because the power of God that has worked in them through the preaching of the gospel. And he gives us the content of the gospel, that Jesus is found in the scriptures. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. He's truly man, truly God. And he came and bore our sin. And then he tells us the goal of the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. For the sake of his name among all nations. The goal of the gospel is the glory of God. It is the glory of God. In Romans chapter 11, verse 
36, Paul says, I have it somewhere here. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Last verse of Romans chapter 11. Paul's theology is summed up in this verse. He says, for from, high, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The sum of all Paul's theology, all the deep theology of Romans is glory be to God. Glory be to God. And lastly, the fourth thing that Paul lets us in on is he lets us in on his dedication to the gospel. His dedication to the gospel. These are not a lot of notes, I promise. I just write really big so I can see. (laughs) Really big, I promise. I'm going to prove it to you. That page has got nothing on it. All right. He lets us in on his dedication to the gospel. Very quickly, first point, he says Paul's purpose was the gospel. From Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says, I was set apart for the gospel of God. I was set apart for the gospel of God. And secondly, Paul's proclamation was the gospel. He said, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach what? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In Colossians, he said, him we proclaim. And lastly, Paul's passion was the gospel. And here's where I want to end tonight. Paul's passion was the gospel. In Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul in Galatians just says the opposite, the positive of the negative. In Romans 1.16, he says in Galatians 6.14, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. And I to the world. Paul's passion was the gospel. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, look, I had everything. I could have, I could have had money. I could have had wealth. I could have had fame. I could have had it all. But this gospel was so important to me that everything that has happened to me Everything that has happened to me, I count it as rubbish. I may gain Christ, and I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him. In Philippians chapter 1, he, he, he will say, he says, to live is Christ. And then he says, to die is gain. To die is gain. How did Paul die? Well, we don't know how Paul died. It doesn't tell us. I mean, he could have been like Enoch and just, went up to heaven, but there's no reason to believe that. Best evidence that we have is Paul was probably martyred in Rome by the emperor Nero, who would literally, he would light the streets of Nero with, he, he would light the streets of Rome with the bodies of Christians. He would throw them into a, 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 an arena of lions, and they would, the lions would kill them. That was probably the fate of Paul. And he lived the message. He died for the message. In the last, part, in the last letter that many believe that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, 
Again, this is the last letter. He's in prison as he's writing this in the Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And he says, remember. He tells Timothy, he says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. The offspring of David. As preached in my gospel. As far as I know, some of you can correct me with this. I'm not 100% sure, but I think this may be the only time that Paul says my gospel. Maybe wrong. But, he, I mean, it's just as, as he comes to the end of his life, he, this gospel, it's, it turns from the gospel to, man, this is my gospel. This is my gospel. In verse 9, last verse, he says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And then he tells Timothy, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. And I don't know about you, but 2,000 years later, we can confirm, fact check, true, right? The word of God is not bound. We are a result of the gospel. It's not bound. Come on, this Bible right here, it communicates a gospel that is alive and it is well. It brings revival. It saves souls. Amen? Amen. Let's pray tonight. God, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus, the precious gospel of Jesus. It's so real to us, God. Lord, my prayer for us, Lord, is that we just wouldn't become bored with just a message. God, but it becomes our life. And as we read the Bible, we just begin to see Jesus everywhere. God, this is so real. God, I, I pray that even as we go to work and in our families and as we share maybe in small groups or even as we may sing, as we may preach, God, that we would share the gospel, that we would live the gospel, that we would lead in our families with the gospel, that we would sing the gospel, that we would preach the gospel, the gospel that Paul would give his life for, Jesus. It's our honor to live for. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you, guys.